Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 132, The Life and Murder of Grigory Rasputin, part 2. Last time, we went over the early years of the Stranek, Grigory Rasputin, and how he came to be at the court of the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, despite his being a functionally illiterate peasant. In today's podcast, we'll go over the events that led to the conspiracy and murder of Rasputin by members of the Russian aristocracy and of a foreign power that was also likely involved. I'd like to go back a little bit and discuss one of Rasputin's early allies, then turned enemy, the monk Iliador. Iliador, by 1911, had ended his relationship with Grigori and began a slander and blackmail campaign against his former friend. But all was not well with Iliador, as he was getting the reputation as being the mad monk. He wrote a semi-autobiographical-slash-biographical work about Rasputin entitled Mad Monk of Russia, Iliador, Memoirs and Confessions of Sergei Mikhailovich Trufanov, which was supported by one Maxim Gorky, whose intention it was to besmirch the reputation of the Tsar and the Romanov dynasty. His book, though, is somewhat fictional, but does contain a lot of facts, especially about Rasputin. Born Sergei Mikhailovich Trufanov on October 19, 1880, Iliador would eventually renounce his membership in the Russian Orthodox Church and even in his belief in God and would offer his services to Vladimir Lenin before immigrating to New York City in 1922. Because of this behavior, I was quite surprised how many historians actually believed in everything he said in his book. In 1911, the monk Iliador, Bishop Hermogen, and two other men tried to humiliate Rasputin in a meeting, going so far as to try to smother him. Grigori sent a distressed telegram to the emperor telling him of the event. The four men had accused Rasputin of having sexual affairs with the Empress Alexandra, which really would have been pretty impossible given the, given the way the Ohrana, the Tsar's secret police, had watched every move of this Strenek. This was the first attempt at Rasputin's life. Before we get into the second attack, let's talk about the Okhrana and their stalking of Rasputin. Whenever Grigori went anywhere, he was followed and, this is important, handwritten accounts of who he saw, where he saw them, and what he did was carefully put together in files. They were then typed up for the official reports, but the handwritten accounts were kept. What has been uncovered is how many of the handwritten notes from the field operatives differed from the official accounts. More on this later. The second and more serious attempt on his life was by Kionia Guseva, a woman who tried to kill Rasputin with a dagger and was a follower of one Iliador. There is some evidence of a link between the two that suggests that Trufanov had direct knowledge of the incident. Anna Vyrubova, a friend of the Empress Alexandra and Rasputin, claimed that she believed that Guseva was sent by Iliador, according to her memoirs. Now here we come up with more controversy. There is some controversy with Vyrubova's first published memoir, and it may not have been written by her at all, but by an imposter. No one is truly sure. Guseva, though, also tried to kill Patriarch and now Saint Tikhon in 1919, after being released from prison by order of Alexander Kerensky. 
but the injuries suffered from the attack by Rasputin were to cause him pain for the rest of his life. Now, let's head back to St. Petersburg. With his presence at the court of the imperial family increasing ever so slightly, the two women who introduced him, the Montenegrin sisters, began to feel mighty jealous of their former friend. They felt that they should control the Strenek while with the Tsar and family, but Rasputin no longer needed them. By 1912, while his visits to the family were still rare, there was another issue that aggravated the sisters, and that was their feeling that Russia needed to get involved in the Balkan Wars. Since their father was the Montenegrin king, Nikolai, they begged the Tsar to intervene. Rasputin, for his part, was against war, as he felt it would put the monarchy in grave danger and that the loss of Russian lives would be intolerable, and he made it known to the Tsar. This is likely the tipping point on the sisters' feelings towards Grigori. They now despised the man and would see to it that he was destroyed in any way possible. One way was to claim that he was a schismatic. Investigations into his possible membership in the Klist sect were carried out four times, some suggesting that it was Militsaya who spread the rumor as revenge, although the first accusation of Rasputin belonging to the Klist sect was in 1903. The fourth investigation came after the abdication of the Tsar by the provisional government, and even that one found no credible evidence. Of this, we finally have a general consensus amongst most historians today on this issue. One of the few. Now, in the time, there was still talk of him being in the Klist, but basically, when it comes down to history, we really don't have any evidence that he was. When Rasputin was stabbed by Guseva, it was just weeks before the beginning of World War I. When the war started, Grigori was still in bed recovering from his substantial and near-fatal wounds. He was greatly concerned about the war and its effect on Russia and the Tsar, so he shot off a long telegram to Nicholas, imploring him to press for peace. According to Anna Lyubova, quote, The emperor, believing intervention in Serbia a point of honor, tore up the telegram and for a time appeared rather cold towards Rasputin. But as the war progressed, they became friends again, for after it became inevitable, Rasputin wanted the war fought through to a victorious end. This last sentence was very important as rumors began to circulate years later that Grigori wanted Russia to sue for peace, which caused a great deal of concern in Great Britain. Here is the English translation of the telegram from Rasputin to Nicholas II. Quote, Dear friend, once again I say a thundercloud is above Russia. Pity, much grief, darkness, and no gleam of hope. Tears now a sea, and there are no measures. And blood? What to say? There are no words. Horror. I know all want war from you, and truly not knowing for the sake of destruction. God's punishment is heavy. You are Tsar, father of the people. Do not allow the senseless to celebrate and destroy oneself and the people. Think that everything is different. Everything drowns in great blood. Destruction without end. Sadness. Grigori. Rasputin understood in his simple peasant way how the majority of the Russian people felt and would feel if the war could be fought which was a unique gift that the aristocracy just could not grasp. 
the people would lose all sense of loyalty to the Tsar and the entirety of the Romanov family. After 1915, had the Russians sued for peace, Germany could have moved all of its men from the Eastern Front to the West, which would have swamped Great Britain and France and ended the war. The fear the United Kingdom had was great, and they would do anything to avoid that from happening. There was a good deal of correspondence going back and forth between the British ambassador in St. Petersburg and London about the concern. Of course, their main concern was the influence of Rasputin on the Tsar through Alexandra, his wife, an influence, an influence that was really greatly exaggerated by many. Others felt that his influence over the Tsarina was enormous, like two authors of books on Rasputin, Joseph Furman and Edvard Radzinski. In my research into Rasputin's life, I came across a third attempt at his life in 1915, according to Margarita Nalipa's book, The Murder of Grigory Rasputin. It occurred in St. Petersburg on January 6th, 1915, quote, when a cart lost its load of large logs on the Kamen-Otz-Drovitsky Prospect. The logs narrowly missed Rasputin and his secretary, Aron Simonovich, was in the car with him. While at first this seems like an accident, it turned out that the two men involved admitted that good old Sergei Trufanov, also known as Iliodor, was behind the accident meant to kill Rasputin. The Ohrana was following Grigori, and the men were quickly taken into custody and questioned. A woman who was injured in this incident was shuffled off to the hospital along with some hush money to keep quiet. By this time, the Ochrana had made overtures to Prime Minister Peter Stolepin, saying that they believed that Rasputin was gaining undue influence over the Tsarina because of their meetings at the house of Anna Vyrobova. Some thought the meetings were of a sexual nature and that Alexandra came alone, but that is absolutely ludicrous as she never left without a large retinue of security whenever she was away from home. Tsar Nicholas got wind of this and he forbade Stolepin from continuing the surveillance, but the Prime Minister ordered that he still be watched and eventually gave an order to arrest Rasputin. As they were ready to get him, they found out, much to their surprise, that he had returned to his hometown in Siberia. Numerous reports began to arrive at the Akrana headquarters claiming that Grigory was hiring prostitutes out partying and generally living a debauched life. Problem is, when the information was checked years later, nothing matched up. Remember those handwritten field reports? Well, they differed from the diaries accumulated in the Department of Justice. Later, one of those involved admitted that the entries had been altered and that nothing was really true about the rumors of Rasputin's behavior. Still, the damage had been done. Edvard Radzinski, in his book, The Rasputin File, claims that a file was made available to him in 1995, which showed otherwise. I have some reservations about this so-called file, but it could be true, and I have some doubts about its veracity, but Radzinski does make a good case for it being the truth. Either way, I do recommend his and the Lippa's books if you care to do further research on Rasputin, because they do tend to disagree with each other, and I think that's something that, you know, everybody should be made aware of. But the Okrana was not the only secret police to have their eyes on the Stranek. 
the British intelligence community, led by Samuel Hore, was watching as well. They were, as I mentioned before, concerned about the influence that Rasputin had on the imperial couple. They would become more than interested, as you shall see and hear later in the podcast. A number of conspiracies were swirling around Russia to kill Rasputin. Alexei Kovostov and Stepan Beletsky conspired to kill him because they felt that Nicholas II's incompetency in regards to the war and Russian government in general was due to the influence of Grigori. Their plot failed, but many more were brewing. Now, instead of going over each of them, I would highly recommend Margarita's Nalipa's book about the murder of Rasputin instead. She goes into great detail explaining all the machinations that occurred during the two years before Rasputin's actual assassination. Do understand, though, her book does go against much of what has been said about this Srinik and is considered revisionist history. Fabricated letters were being sent to the Duma to build a case against Rasputin and the imperial couple, especially Empress Alexandra. Of course, the mad monk Iliador was behind many of them. By 1912, they began to make the Stranek a political creature. They needed a target that wasn't the Tsar to attack the emperor. As Evgeny Botkin, the imperial family's personal physician, said, quote, If Rasputin did not exist, then the adversaries of the imperial family and the preparationists of the revolution would have created him from their own babble, from Vyrubova, if no Vyrubova, from me, from whomever you want. Now, if you listen to the rumor mill at the time, Rasputin was a constant visitor to the palace of the Tsar. But as Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna, Nicholas II's youngest daughter, was quoted as saying, quote, To judge by some of the absurdities written about him, you would imagine he practically lived at the palace. By now, the newspapers were feeding off the rumor mill and writing articles that were absolute outright fabrications. One by Ivan Manasevich Manilov claimed that Rasputin, quote, was bathed in a Siberian home sauna by seven naked females. Now, these women were supposedly close to the imperial court, which makes the claim even more absurd. Because of the 1905 October Manifesto, the Tsar was limited in his ability to censor the media and put a stop to the rumor mill. Because of Rasputin's closeness to Alexandra, gossip of the day again suggested a sexual nature to their friendship. But according to one of the Empress's close friends, Lily Den, quote, Rasputin's influence was purely mystical, and that there was absolutely no sensual attraction such a monstrous thing never happened. Her morals were the ultra-strict morals of her grandmother. Now, of course, we need to remember that Tsarina Alexandra's grandmother was none other than Queen Victoria of England, the very definition of prudishness. The attacks on Alexandra were beginning to ramp up as the casualties of the war began to become known. Anything German was targeted, including any business with a smattering of German in their name. The city of St. Petersburg name was actually changed to the even more Russian-sounding Petrograd. But the enmity against the Empress was just not just relegated to the people of Russia, but her own relatives began to side against her because of her Germanness. 
This seems absurd when you remember that many of the Romanovs were mostly German themselves, but reality, in fact, did not seem to coincide during the last days of the dynasty. You have to remember that Nicholas II, actually, according to, you know, look at genealogy, was 97% German and only 3% Russian. So go figure. And that's the same for his brothers and his nephews and nieces and all the other relatives. Well, according to Margarita and Alippa, the members of the Romanov family then began to plot against Alexander and Rasputin, and they were the following. Quote, Dowager Empress Maria Fyodorovna, Grand Duchess Elizaveta Diodrovna, the Grand Dukes Nikolai Nikolaevich, Nikolai Mihailovich, and Alexander Mihailovich. The machinations of within this group would be the downfall of the Romanov rule, as well as causing the death of Rasputin. Despite the rumors of Grigory's easy access to the Tsar and the imperial family, his access was no longer freely given by 1914. This should have squashed the belief that he was able to have the ear of the emperor and influence war policy, but we're no longer dealing with rational people. Their jealousies had turned to hatred for both Alexandra and Rasputin. Nothing could stop it anymore, which led the group to conclude if they couldn't convince Nicholas to send Alexandra to a convent, which was their plan, then the next best thing would be to kill Rasputin. Grigory became despondent and began to start drinking alcohol again, something he had quit many years before. Then something called the Yar Incident supposedly occurred where a drunk Rasputin exposed himself at a restaurant in Moscow, known as the Yar, in front of the female choir and made comments of his closeness to the Tsarina. This was major news and has been repeated throughout many historical accounts of the period by most Russian historians, which is sad as there was no real evidence from the Okhrana reports on Rasputin that this actually occurred. The person behind this alleged fabrication was General Vladimir Junkovsky. He went to the Tsar in Sarskoye Selo on June 1, 1915, officially to report on protests in Moscow, which called for the abdication of Nicholas in favor of his relative, the grandson of Nicholas I, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich. He then decided to tell the Tsar the truth about Rasputin, except it wasn't the truth. According to the historian Oleg Platonov, Junkowski conspired with Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich to present the false information. But much to the former governor of Moscow region Junkowski's chagrin, a secret inquiry into the Yar incident by Nikolai Sablin found nothing to back up the allegation, which caused Junkowski's dismissal from his current position. The anti-Alexandra group, not knowing about the inquiry, wrongly believed that it was Rasputin's influence that caused their friend to be dismissed. This is where the rumors began that Grigori had the power to have people fired or reassigned. Nicholas II also made it known to Grand Duke Nikolai what had really happened at the Yar restaurant and that no other explanation would be accepted. It is generally thought that this meant that the Tsar knew his relative was behind the fabricated incident. The problem was that this false incident may have been the final straw that broke the back of Nicholas II's grip on power. 
all thought, including many Russian historians, that Rasputin had undue influence on the Tsar and that fed into the calls for revolution against him, helping first the provisional government, then the Bolsheviks to come to power. The dismissal of Junkovsky was not the biggest removal from power that was to shake the Romanov family. It was the dismissal of Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich as the commander-in-chief of the Russian armed forces. In his somewhat unbalanced view, Nicholas II decided to take over, which was a horrible mistake. The removing of the Grand Duke was a wise decision, as he was not handling the war effort very well. But for the Tsar to take control of a bad situation was a blunder of the highest order. And guess who was blamed for the removal of the Grand Duke? Well, you're right. Alexandra and that scoundrel Rasputin, although neither had anything to do with it. I hope by now you understand how biased, twisted, and contradictory the information we have about Rasputin is. I'm as guilty as anyone as I believed in all of the stories told about the man and recounted them in my podcast about the reign of Nicholas II. And this is where history really gets difficult, but oh, so rewarding. To show you what I was up against in researching this podcast, I want to give you a few quotes from the Encyclopedia of Russian History. Quote, Rasputin was poisoned, severely beaten, and shot three times. And yet autopsy reports disclose that he died by drowning in the Neva River. Well, two of the three comments are kind of correct, but one had not caused his death and only came after the third shot. Second, quote, Rasputin favored Jews, prostitutes, homosexuals, and the poor and disadvantaged, including, and in particular, members of religious sects. Again, only one thing was verifiably true, and that was him favoring the poor and disadvantaged. Thirdly, Rasputin ended as a womanizer and hopeless drunk who undermined the regime of Nicholas II and hastened its collapse. Yes, he undermined the collapse of the Romanov dynasty, but not by his own doing alone, but by the machinations of the family itself. Why do I make such an accusation against the Romanov family? Well, after looking at all the information from a number of sources, it is very apparent that they helped to undermine Nicholas II. Grand Duke Nikolai Mikhailovich, along with the Dowager Empress, the Tsar's own mother, so detested Tsarina Alexander and thereby Rasputin that they not only encouraged the group that would eventually kill the Stranek, but the Grand Duke most likely helped with the planning and has been called the mastermind. According to many accounts, Rasputin's influence with Tsarina Alexandra began to grow as Nicholas left Petrograd to run the war effort. The Tsar had left his wife behind to help run the government, and Rasputin was called on numerous occasions to provide advice, which the Empress listened to all too eagerly. Tongues began to wag all over the capital as Grigori also had a say in who would be appointed to numerous positions within the government. He made more and more enemies every day. Rasputin was viewed as an enemy of the state, when nothing he really did was to hurt his country, he sincerely wanted to help it. But remember, he was a functionally illiterate peasant and not a scheming genius. Now is the time in the podcast where we bring in the culprits who planned and carried out the murder. The first one, of course, is Prince Felix Yusupov, at whose home the deed was done. And the second is Vladimir Purushkovich. 
Another one we have is Dr. Stanislav Lazverit, the man who supposedly laced the wine and cakes with potassium cyanide. Also, there was Sergei Mikhailovich Sukhotin, an officer in the Priobrzezinski Regiment. And it is here I bring in one other man who I believed was involved, and that was British SIS Office Lieutenant Oswald Rayner, who knew Yusupov from his days at Oxford University. On December 29, 1916, Rasputin was lured to the home of Prince Yusupov by his wife Irina, but she was out of town on purpose because she did not want to be part of the murder plot, which she knew about. Both Yusupov and Dr. Lazovert picked up Grigory from his apartment and drove him to the prince's home along the Moika River. They ushered him into a room in the basement, which was supposedly soundproof. Here is where accounts begin to diverge from reality. It has been said that Rasputin was given petty four cakes and wine laced with enough cyanide to kill five men, according to Yusupov in his book. He supposedly ate a bunch of the poisoned cakes, but both his daughter Maria and his secretary, Samantovich, doubted that, as he always avoided sweets because of the wounds he suffered after the attack by Guseva and his dietary habits, which started when he became a stranik. Still, he supposedly did down a few glasses of wine, but he showed no effects, which surprised Yusupov, and even that fact is debatable. After waiting patiently for him to collapse, he went upstairs to confer with his co-conspirators and decided he needed to end things now. Really, there is little doubt that there was no cyanide in either the cakes or the wine, and the doctor admitted later that he got cold feet and did not poison the stranek. One legend down, more to come. And another thing, this is, it was probably that Yusupov did feel that it was poisoned and that was going to kill him, and he was really surprised. And this is kind of where the legend begins. He thought the doctor had really carried out his, you know, deed, but turns out he didn't. Well, Yusupov got a revolver and went into the basement and shot Rasputin through the left chest that went into his stomach and likely hit his kidneys. The prince went upstairs convinced that his nemesis was dead, but he wasn't. Likely knowing he needed to get out of there, Grigori climbed the stairs and stumbled out into the courtyard. Another shot rang out, and then another. It is this third shot that likely killed Rasputin instantly, as it was in the forehead. And remember when I said about the truth about what happened to Rasputin? Well, here's where Yusupov began to beat the dead body with a club over and over. But the doorbell rang, and in the doorway was a policeman who had heard the noise. He was told to go away because it was nothing important that he shouldn't disturb the czar who was supposedly nearby. But the officer did report the incident to his superiors, which led them suspecting Yusupov as soon as they found the Strenek dead. Rasputin's body was wrapped in a curtain and put into a car, and he was thrown into the Maleka Nevka River, into an ice hole off the Petrovsky Bridge. And here's where some of the bumbling came into play. Because they didn't tie a weight to the body, and they left a size 10 galosh on the bridge, it didn't take long for the authorities to find his body a couple of days later. Myth number two was about to be blown up. There is no evidence that Rasputin had any water in his lungs, as he was already dead. He absolutely, positively did not drown. 
Now, the reason I believe he was dead was the bullet wound in the forehead, which was fired at point-blank range. And who do I think did the deed? Our good old friend, Lieutenant Oswald Rayner of the British Secret Intelligence Service, with a Webley .455-inch unjacketed round. Now, this finding comes from the work of Professor Derek Pounder, who also noted that one other SIS officer was in town at the same time, and that was Captain Stephen Alley, who was born in 1876 at, get this, the Yusupov Palace. Now, the reason I picked Rayner over Alley is because the lieutenant was also the person who translated Yusupov's book into English on the murder, ostensibly trying to keep their story straight and deflect suspicion on the British. Whomever the real culprit is, it is likely that a Brit committed the ultimate crime, but that the first or second shot fired by a Russian would have taken Rasputin's life given enough time. He was bleeding to death. The aftermath of the assassination was devastating to the Tsar and his wife. They were appalled by the knowledge that it was the husband of their only niece that committed the crime, Felix Yusupov. Nicholas also believed that his relative Nikolai Mihailovich was in on it as well, and he banished him from the imperial court. But it didn't save him after the revolution, as he was executed by the Bolsheviks in 1918. Yusupov, though, does make it out alive and would live a number of years later. Uh, instead of helping to prop up the regime, the murder did nothing to silence the critics. It actually made things far worse. Now, there was only Tsarina Alexandra to blame, but with that, you now also had to blame the Tsar himself. Within a couple of months, he was forced to abdicate, and in a little over a year, he and his entire family were brutally executed at the Apatyev house in Ekaterinburg. Well, that's the end of this podcast, but join me next time when I'm going to begin a series on famous Russian and Soviet field marshals and generals. And what I'm going to do with this series, I'm going to do a few of them at one time, two or three, and then take a break, do a different subject, and then come back to different uh, Soviet and Russian field marshals and generals. So probably over the next six months, we'll be covering a number of them. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I invite you all to come over to Facebook where you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment at the Russian Rulers History podcast uh, site there. And uh, we have lively discussions, people sharing pictures and you know historical things about Russia. And, you know, we're a bit over 700 people now there. So, as always, Tasvidanya i spasiba Bolshoya.